Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything. Kids, health, aged parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. Hello, jugglers, and welcome to episode four. Today, my guest is Kim Trottier. Kim is a registered dental therapist, and as part of her job, she provides dental care to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. Not only does her job involve extensive travel away from home, but she's also a busy mom, an outdoor enthusiast, and she was recently inspired to create a new initiative called Culturally Committed. And that's what she's going to talk to us about today. She is one of the most authentic and supportive human beings I've had the pleasure of getting to know, and I think you're going to think so too. Welcome, Kim. Start by telling me what a dental therapist is, and then we're going to walk into this other organization that you've created. Sure. Well, I don't think you're alone in not really knowing what a dental therapist is because we are just the teeniest, tiniest little sector of the oral health um, professionals. There's actually only five dental therapists working in all of British Columbia. So we are a very small um, demographic. But essentially, when when dental therapy came into being, there was a recognition that a lot of people that lived in remote communities didn't have access to services. And that lack of access was impacting the oral health of remote communities. And so they decided to create a dental therapy program with the intention that dental therapists would be like a mid-level service provider. They could go into communities and provide mid-level oral health services. So So would that be kind of like a physician's assistant, like kind of between a nurse and a physician with some extra abilities? Is that kind of what we're talking about? That's kind of how I explain it to people. We're kind of like the nurse practitioners of dentistry. So I do fillings. I do extractions, I do cleanings, I have portable equipment that I take with me when I go to communities that don't have dental clinics. So I'll take a portable x-ray head, a portable dental cart, and I get to travel into these super remote communities that people rarely have the opportunity to explore and connect with people from different cultures and backgrounds and really provide services that are so necessary and so lacking. So it's a pretty incredible. It's a pretty incredible um, profession to be in. Dental therapists in British Columbia don't work in private practice. But before I we were here, I worked in Saskatchewan for 10 years in private practice. So it's a completely different feel. It's very relationship-centered. Um, my day-to-day is so dynamic. No two days ever look the same. And it's not so much governed by the clock on the wall, but it's it's more a priority of connecting with the people that you're working with. So I just love it. I feel very fortunate to do this work. So cool. And I have just so many more questions now. <laughs> but um, one of so one of the things is I know when we were meeting up at one point, you were on your way to some remote community. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting job. So how does that impact your family life? Because you have two, not young kids, but younger kids. You have pets at home. If you're always on the road and traveling to remote places, how does that impact your family dynamic? And what, how do you guys work? Like, what processes do you have in place so that that all flows and, and it works for everybody? So when I first started into this role, I've been doing this work for seven years now. Prior to that, my husband was in a profession where he 
was very much, um, our, our whole world revolved around his schedule. And so um, it was at that time that we were examining what our lives looked like and where I was at professionally and what was happening with him and his work life. And we decided that it made sense for him to step back and transition into something different so I could step forward and and dig into this work that I was really interested in doing. And so him doing that provided me with the space to move forward and explore these roles and opportunities. Interesting. So, yeah. There's so yeah, many partners. So, Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt for one second because yeah. anyone that heard my previous interview about Rhonda, the midwife, they also had to make that kind of a shift in their life because of course she's on call at all hours of the day and night. And so her partner had to kind of step in and fill the gap. And And it's interesting to see how 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 people make that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way that I work my schedule pre-COVID, because life has completely changed since then, but uh, I would generally set aside one week a month where I was traveling to the real remote communities where I would have to stay away for the week. Um, but aside from that, the communities that I go to on my normal week-to-week basis are all within driving distance. So it's just like a normal 8 to 5.30 is sort of what my days look like. And and so it's it's been easy with Jeremy's support. He's been so great at um, picking up the slack when I can't be around and I appreciate him so much. I couldn't do it without him. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like a lot of teamwork happening there. Mm-hmm. What? So did you say you were also a dental therapist in Saskatchewan or is this something you transitioned to in BC? Yeah, I've been a dental therapist for 20 years now. It's my 20 years. Year Sorry, I missed that part. <laughs> what made you choose this path? What made you choose this, this profession? When I was 18, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. And it was my mom who said to me, you know, Kim, you've always loved going to the dentist. I was one of those weird people that actually liked going to the dentist. And so so she said, why don't you explore dental assisting? Because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I applied to a dental assisting program. And the one that I got into, there was actually three of the instructors who were dental therapists. And I'd never heard of dental therapy before this time. And so when I discovered this career opportunity, I just thought, wow, that's really cool, actually. Like what a, I'd always thought there was like, you know, you could be a dental assistant, which was a small time commitment or a dental yeah. hygienist, which was bigger or a dentist, which just seemed like, you know, seven years. It just yeah. seemed like something I wasn't even willing to consider at that time. Yeah. So I, I finished my dental assisting. I worked as a dental assistant for one year. And before that year was over, I thought... I'm I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try to transition into dental therapy. And yeah. so I applied I applied to the program. The program um, was facilitated through First Nations University of Canada. I'm non-Indigenous, but they do accept a handful of non-Indigenous students. So I applied and I was accepted. So wow. I was thrilled and and I just haven't looked back. It was it's just been such a great opportunity. And did that require a geographic move for you to go to school there too? And and did you have a family at that time? We did not. I was 19 at that time. Jeremy oh, and I wow. were to, we were together. We were still dating. Um, but I we at the time when I was dental assisting, we lived in Saskatoon and I had to move to Prince Albert, which was about an hour and a half away. But that was around the same time that Jeremy started transitioning into his career path. And so we were kind of doing our own things. It was we were together and we spent time together when we could, but we were living in different cities at that time. Okay. Thank you for for some really amazing information. I too only thought for the longest time there was dental assistants, dental hygienists, and then dentists. I had no idea this field even existed, but it sounds amazing. 
this kind of leads me into my next question because the show is about juggling responsibilities and clearly you have another huge project on the go that you've started this year. Do you want to tell me what that is and what led you to do this? Because I feel like this is probably very interconnected with your, with your career and this is where this blossomed, right? Yeah, it is. So um, in January of this year, I launched an initiative that I'm calling Culturally Committed. And so the intention is to create a place where non-Indigenous health and service providers can come to connect and learn directly from Indigenous mentors and elders. And the intention of this work is to try to help educate the non-Indigenous community on how to provide services and care that are culturally safe. So in a way that people feel safe, heard, and respected. And definitely my professional experiences have been the driving force in bringing this work forward. So, sorry, so does that mean that in your experience, maybe those experiences haven't always felt safe for people? Has that been your, your experience? So for the past seven years, the work that I've been doing is exclusively in Indigenous communities. And prior to doing this work, I really didn't have those uh, much of those experiences. But um, when I started doing this work, one of the things that I was so fortunate for was that in each community that I worked, I was assigned a community member to be like my support person. And when I first started, I, I'm really, I, I bring my heart to my practice and I really do care about the people that I'm, that I'm serving. Um, but I really was ignorant about things that I should and should not be doing. And so through those community members that were supporting me, they would kind of gently guide me when I was saying or doing things that weren't culturally safe. And because we had those trusting relationships, I appreciated that feedback so much. And so by receiving that feedback in a safe way, I was able to adopt my practice to be more culturally safe. Yeah. Um, And so like, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say the fact that you're open to that, that that you're willing to say, you know what, I can be better at what I'm doing and there's room for change here is mm-hmm. is amazing to just have an open heart and say, you know, there's a better way to do things. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to maybe have a story or an example that you want to share um, on that topic that would help help our listeners to, to really understand it on a deeper level? Oh, let me think. Okay, so this was something actually that I was just sharing with our community the other day. Um, and it was around the idea of family structures. And so when I was growing up and in my, and it, I believe in Western society, I feel like I was taught that to be a successful adult, there's a priority placed around leaving home at a young age. As, as a young adult, if you are not, you know, Yes. By the time you're 22 or 23, it's kind of like, you know, is there something wrong with you? Like, why can't you stand on your own two feet? We're supposed to be independent by this time. And so that was something that I didn't even realize was part of my lens. Um, And so I would sometimes look at communities where there was multiple generations of people living in a house and kind of be like, "Hmm, I wonder why they choose to do that. Like, why wouldn't you want to live on your own? And it was through this work that one day that I just realized, especially on the coast, um, people, Indigenous people traditionally lived in longhouses. Yeah. And it was multiple families in longhouses and everyone lived 
together. And, and in these homes, we have multiple generations of people living together and it is such a strong family support unit. And there's grandparents and aunts and uncles raising the children and how actually beautiful that is. And so it was kind of like, I had to do some unlearning around that once I recognized that I was doing it. And now I just think how foolish to, uh, what a foolish way to think or to judge that people might live, you know, um, multiple generations in a family home. It's actually so beautiful. Yeah. And we do, we see things through the lens of our, our own experience. And then, you know, when we step back and we look through the lens of someone else's experience, it's different, but that's really interesting to me because I would have thought that after the sort of the residential school system broke up so many families that maybe that that would have disappeared. And I'm glad to hear that it continues because there's many cultures that do that. And, and, and it is a really beautiful thing to, to have multiple. We have a mother-in-law that lives on our property with us. And, and it's a beautiful thing for the kids to be able to come home and, and talk to grandma and just pull that wisdom out and to have that, that support and sense of community, especially in a small remote community to have that around you is, is an amazing thing, but it's definitely a, Sometimes we do bring our own experience to things and, and we need to just open our eyes and see that things can be different and that that's, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So tell me about this new initiative. So how is how does that look logistically? Like, is it, uh, is it workshops? Is it, uh, what kind of healthcare providers? Are you reaching out to them? Are they reaching out to you? How's it being received? Just tell me all about it. Yeah. So um, essentially what it is, is uh, it's a membership. And so people can sign up for a membership. And with the membership, uh, participants have access to a monthly community call. And so on the community call, it's a time where our members can kind of come forward with any questions they've been having and kind of just talk about it with the mentors that are that are partici- participating with the program. So we have four Indigenous members that have stepped forward as mentors. Um, two of them are elders. Two of them are a little bit younger. And just to get their take on things. And some of the questions that have come forward are just so beautifully naive. And I and I say that with kindness. Like yeah. um, one of the questions that came forward was, what does it mean when people raise their hands? Like I see people raise their hands all the time, but I don't know what that means. Yeah. And And if somebody raises their hands to me, is it okay if I raise my hands back or is that appropriation? And so, you know, Interesting. that's kind of what I'm, yeah, Good that's questions what, too. Like it, you say, so naive, but so important, like, like mm-hmm. to ask. And, and I now I want to know what the answer is to that. Do you, do you, are you going to share that with us? Yeah. The answer, the, the, the teaching that we received from the mentors was yes, it is okay for you to raise your hands in return. And, and, and when you raise your hands to somebody that's saying like, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. But those who can't see Kim, she has her hands raised, palms facing inwards, uh, knuckles facing out. And so that is a form of thank you. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful to hear that. And and I love the idea of a community call where, you know, you've got two cultures coming together, sharing their, you know, their experience and Mm -hmm. and those questions that you feel dumb asking, but you need to ask because if you don't ask, you're you're just stumbling and you're, and you may be doing something harmful without even being aware mm-hmm. that you're harming someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the questions that have come forward are definitely a bit more complex, 
Um, recently, there was um, an, an event that happened in Ladysmith. This just, just happened on Tuesday, where I'm not sure if you or your listeners have seen this, but there has been red dresses hanging um, all along Vancouver Island up in the trees. Yeah. And there was a video that came forward a few days ago, and it was two young men who were ripping the red dresses down and throwing them in the bushes. Mm-hmm. And And there was so many people that were, a lot of my Indigenous friends were so hurt by that. And when I was reading the comments that I was seeing on Facebook, there was that side of things. But then there was also the other side where people had no idea what these red dresses were about. Like no idea. And so um, yesterday I posted on my socials talking about like, what do these red dresses mean? And, And the question that came forward from our community was, is it okay if I hang a red dress? Like, how, what would the Indigenous community think of me hanging a red dress? I saw and, that post. Yeah, it made me think on my route that there's been a red dress hanging there for like five years. And I know what it means. And every time I see it, it just, it breaks my heart. But I'm, but that would have been a question too. Is it okay for someone else to hang one? And and do, do you want to explain to people what that means for those that don't? Because it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Red Dress Project was initiated by a Métis artist named Jamie Black. And the red dresses hanging in the trees are supposed to signify the lives that are no longer there. And so it's a response to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And so when we're hanging that red dress, we are trying to bring attention and awareness to the you know, thousands of women that are missing and continue to go missing you know, every day. Um, And so when I saw that video of those two young men ripping those dresses down, I, my heart broke for the people that I care about because I can't even imagine how they must feel. Like I hear people telling me how they feel like they're not heard and they're not seen and to see somebody be so careless and hateful yeah. Like it's, it, it would just be like, is this, is there even a point? Like, is anybody listening? And so in my post, I wanted to share what that information was, but I also wanted to, you know, ask the non-Indigenous community to consider demonstrating that we do care. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to shout out over the noise of that ugliness and just ask people to use their voices and use their, and use their words to, to show that we do care. There are people that do care and, and to urge people to consider hanging a red dress, you know? Yeah. I am an ally, uh, an ally. I'm, you know, I, I, yeah. Um, I also lost uh, someone that I went to school with in grade seven is one of those murdered missing Mm -hmm. uh, indigenous women. And so when I see that red dress, it just, it just takes me back every time. And and it's a really important, it's a really important conversation and to know Mm -hmm. that, you know, we all need to be the change that we want to see in the world. Right. And we all need to step up whether it affects us or not. It's like someone who's lost a child and set up a roadside memorial and someone goes and, you know, desecrates it. How, how would that make you feel? And, you know, it's essentially what you're doing when you're ripping those dresses down, you're, you're, you're desecrating something that's, that's meant to be not a memorial, but it's really meant to represent something really special and and powerful and uh, it, it causes great harm. So I'm glad you brought attention to that. And I did see that post and, and you answered all the questions that I had about it. Um, so moving on, let's talk about undertaking this new endeavor. A lot of new skills to learn. I had to probably build a website, got yourself a new Yeti microphone, you're facilitating stuff. I assume there's workshops, there's, there's 
all these new skills to learn. And on top of this, you're traveling as a dental <laughs> therapist, you're living in COVID, you've got kids, stuff going on. Like, how are you doing it all? How are you juggling it all? What, what's your process? Yeah. Well, and I should also mention that part of the membership does include um, a monthly workshop series. And so those workshops are facilitated by experts in the Indigenous community just teaching about cultural safety and humility. And so that is also part of the membership if people do decide to be awesome. And if I missed anything, go 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 fill in right now if you want. And is there anything else that I missed that's in that membership? Um yeah, so there is the there is the monthly um, workshop series, and so the exciting thing is right now we're working through having our our workshops acknowledged by the regulatory colleges in the province, and so far the response has been really good. So it's always nice if somebody can participate in something like this and then receive credit from their regulatory oh, like college. CE credit. Like for instance, yes. if you're a nurse and you need so many credits to renew your membership, that might count towards that. Exactly. Brilliant. Wonderful. Yeah. What a great incentive to to do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And then there's also a private Facebook community where our members and mentors can kind of commingle and just talk about things. And so, um, you know, we try to share demonstrations of learning from each of the workshops or just reflections that we have or or questions that we have. It's just a place to gather and, and connect. So that's kind of what that is. But as far as starting this, um, the day that, so I'll, maybe I'll go back to explaining the day that this all happened. Yeah. I want to hear the the story. The catalyst. Um, so in my work, because of the nature of the relationships that I have with the community members, I, I really have some very close relationships. And oftentimes people will seek me out to just talk. Um, sometimes appointments don't, don't involve any dentistry of any kind. They just want somebody to talk to. And oftentimes people will share stories, um, things that they've experienced experiences at residential schools, experiences at Indian hospitals, and then also experiences trying to access health services and hospitals, dental offices, you know, all kinds of different settings and the frustrations that they've faced feeling like they weren't comfortable there. And um, so this happens quite regularly for me in my work and I, and I understand how important those stories are. And, and I always want to offer a pathway to resolution to those people to let them know what options are out there if they want to make a complaint or seek resolution. And most of the time people don't, they don't want, want to be that. heard. They want to be they heard. They just want to be heard. Yeah. And so it, it was a day in October that, Every single patient that I saw shared a recent experience accessing services and it was not culturally safe at all. And on that day, I was just, I, I'm, a, I'm a big Oprah fan. <laughs> and oh, you and, and me Oprah, both, buddy. <laughs> and, and, um, and I always think about uh, when Oprah says, you know, sometimes when you're getting a message, it starts out as like a tap on the shoulder. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, somebody's like tapping harder and then eventually it's a brick to the head. And it was kind of a brick to the head moment for me that, holy cow, like, I need to do something here. I need to do something here. Wow. And so I was just brought with, with um, all kinds of feelings. And I just started reflecting on Dr. Evan Adams, who's an Indigenous physician, and he made the statement that um, we will have achieved cultural safety when First Nations tell us we have. And I just started thinking about the beautiful feedback that I get and how when I hear the things that I'm doing wrong, it helps me to 
change the way that I'm doing things. And I'm not saying I'm a perfect provider because I still continue to make mistakes. And I think that cultural safety is a lifelong journey. No, but, but it's I just that willingness thinking. to look at yourself yeah. and to say, what can I, what can I do better? What can I change here? And, yeah. and that's the difference to me between a good provider and a and an average provider, whether we're talking about physicians, dentals, you know, dentists, whatever, it's that willingness to say, you know what, I, I think I can do better here. Let me, let me do something else. Let me see what else is possible. Yeah. And so I just started thinking like, what if other providers had access to that kind of mentorship and feedback? Yeah. Like, could that really change things? And so um, I reached out to a gentleman who I just love and admire so much. His name is Dan Elliott, and he is a native drug and alcohol counselor. He's an Indigenous artist, and he's from Stamina's First Nation. And I went to his office that day, and I just, I just poured my guts out to him. I explained the, you know, the feedback that I've been getting and this idea that I had. I was really nervous about it because I am very cautious of not wanting to appear as though I am speaking on behalf of the Indigenous community because that is not my intention. But I just wondered, like, could I create the space where people could come together? And Dan said to me that I was, he said there was no doubt that I was being called to do something and it was my responsibility to listen to that and to answer that call. And so I came home that night and I talked to my husband about it and he just said, he just thought it was brilliant. Um, And we were sitting around the kitchen table and I said, I don't even know how to buy a domain. And my (laughs) my 14 year old son said, mom, you just go on GoDaddy. It's so, it's so easy. To the teenagers, right? This is the same thing with my podcast too. Like, it's like, oh, you just find this video or this editor, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all righty. Yeah. Yeah. So buying domains, I built my entire website, um, I've had one of my dear friends, her name is Natasha Wilt. She's built a lot of online training programs. This It's kind of the same model as she has, but just done in a completely different way. So she helped me, she taught me and helped me adapt it to this purpose. Um, and it has been, oh, the writing that I think is the, the part I wasn't expecting, the amount of writing that I oh, have to right. do. Yes. So much writing, so much creative thinking, but um it's just been an absolute roller coaster and with the intention of launching in for January 27th. So I just put my nose down and I did it. Think of all the new brain cells you built though. Like that's just amazing. (laughs) And how has this been received uh, both in those indigenous communities and in, in the communities of professionals that that will utilize these services? Mm -hmm. Yeah. the, The feedback from the indigenous community and the people that I know, they are just so thankful to hear that, you know, their voice, I'm giving up, I'm providing a place for their voices to be heard where sometimes it's not. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the, the providers that are stepping up, it has become very multidisciplinary, which makes me really excited. Yes. Um, but because when I first started, I was really thinking from my professional perspective, but I see now how broad this really can be. Yes. So we have, you know, um, oral health providers, we have physicians and nurses, we have teachers, we have pharmacists. Um, we have a financial advisor in there. Wow. So we kind of are yeah. all over the place. And, yeah. and a lot of the questions that have been coming forward are from uh, people that work in local government. Like yeah. one of the questions that I received the other day was, I received, um, it's a, a community that is on uh, Indigenous traditional lands. Obviously, all the communities are, but they they received a gift from chief and council and the gift was a blanket. And And this gentleman approached me and said, like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, do we hang it on the wall or 
do I put it on my chair? Am I supposed to use it? Like I just, What's appropriate? I, want to, I want to be respectful, but I yeah. just don't know how. And yeah. so I, so I just think the questions coming forward are so awesome. And I and- love that it's not just, we're going to do this program and well, like you're not pushing something onto another community that they haven't asked for. All you're really doing is you're just opening up the dialogue. So there's conversation and sharing and community happening. It's not, we're going to do this or, you know, how the horrors that have been perpetuated in the interest of doing good over the years. It's, it's just, let's just have a conversation. Let's just share our mutual and and try to come together in some mutual understanding and make Mm -hmm. this information available to to people who want it and, and give a voice to people who want to be heard. It sounds like that's really what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's great work. And, and every time we have, particularly the community calls, because that's when we really have that open dialogue flowing. Yeah. There's some powerful stuff that's coming forward out of that. And I think people are, deeply impacted by the the information they're receiving. And I've worked with Indigenous communities for many years now. So I've heard a lot. And and so the stories are staggering and terrible. But for people that have no idea that these things happened, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just rocked by it. It's just, it's unbelievable. I remember that experience like 20 years ago. I had volunteered on a, on a, response team for something. And our first set of training was about residential schools. And I was like 25. And I was like, how did I not even know this existed? Like I, like it was almost overwhelming for me to take in that information. And the fact that I, I had lived 25 years on this earth and not known what, what had happened just blew my mind away. And that no one in my circle knew that. And and this is, you know, it's, the word is getting out there now and people are more aware than they used to be. But I think there are still a lot of people that are very, very uninformed. And and it's just, just to be able to, to open that up and, you know, you can't deal with what you don't know and, you know, you have to know before you can change. So absolutely a powerful thing. Yeah. And I, and I think I want to acknowledge that a lot of us didn't know there, there's a reason we didn't know, right? Like, yeah. But the government was very careful in trying to keep these things hidden away. Yeah. And so it's only just now that we're starting to dig into that yeah. box, that piece of history that yeah. it's finally being revealed. And and I know that um, a lot of the residential school survivors, it's kind of, you know, there's two sides to it. Like on one side, they still feel so much shame around that trauma, but on the other yeah. side, they want they want people to know that this happened, yeah. like this yeah. really happened. And so to, to acknowledge and feel some remorse for, for that these things did happen to them. So I, I'm grateful that, that those doors are opening up and we can start exploring those topics. Dan Elliott, the gentleman that's one of the mentors in the group, he previously worked with the school division and he went into the library. He was asked to go into the library of the school just to explore the resources that the school offered in their indigenous section of the library. And he said he ended up having to take out 90% of the books because they were so incorrect, inaccurate. And just literally historically inaccurate. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And in history is written by, you know, Yes, exactly. I was trying to find the words. And so you did all this through COVID, which has its own joys and challenges. Oh, we just talked about dogs. Huh? We're keeping it yeah. real here. Dogs yeah. are joining the conversation. 
Uh, so the biggest joy in this and the biggest challenge, like what's the, what's, so what's been the challenge to COVID trying to implement this and what's been the silver, silver lining? Like what's for me being able to sit down and have a zoom call with someone without having to travel to their house is, has been my silver lining, but in the process of doing this, what's, how has COVID impacted the way that you would have normally rolled this out or, or the way that you do your job? My dental therapy position, I, we always have to be sensitive to what the community's desires are. And so professionally for my dental therapy work, I've not been traveling into community for a lot of COVID, particularly my more remote communities. Um, those communities really want to keep their elders safe. Those are their knowledge keepers and they're, and they're still in the process of trying to continue um, learning those cultural practices. And so they really want to make sure they're keeping their elders safe. And so a lot of the communities uh, initially said no to services. They just wanted everything to kind of settle down. Now, um, some of my communities I'm back into, some of them I, I still continue staying away. Um, but that has caused a space in my life where I'm not traveling as much. And so it's kind of created the opportunity for me to transition into this work of culturally committed. So yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of worked to my benefit that I've been able to pour myself into this where yeah. I would normally be so running around all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the silver lining is it's freed up some time for you and some space to actually work on this. So again, mm-hmm. One of those things is something tapping you on the shoulder, giving you room to do this, right? Yeah. So that's Absolutely. super cool. Last question that I ask everyone, you know, if you could go back and talk to your 10-year-old self with all the wisdom you have now, what would you tell her? What would you say to do different or what would your advice be? My advice to my 10-year-old self would be, you can do anything you want to. Yeah. Like if you decide you want to do something, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I've I've really developed that belief in myself, probably more so over the last six years, um, as I've really kind of taken on hard things, and just I I recognize now what I'm capable of, yeah. and I wish my ten year old self knew that too. Yeah, and it's the hard things that teach you that you know the other mm-hmm. things that you don't want to do that that are so hard. They're like this mountain you climb, but when you get to the other side, all of a sudden you come out with this confidence and these skill sets. And it was just so, so worth it. Like the reward is, is worth the work. And that's something I've learned over the years too. How can people find you if they want to um, take part in culturally committed, if they want more information, where do they, where where do they reach out to you? Yeah. So um, they can come to my website, which is culturallycommitted.com. We're on Facebook at Culturally Committed. We're on Instagram at Culturally Committed. I'm on LinkedIn. And we actually have some videos on YouTube that I've done with interviews with some of the mentors and knowledge keepers. So if people are curious about you know what sorts of things we talk about, they can go check that out on YouTube. Okay, wonderful. And you've sent me all those links. Those are also going to be in the show notes for anyone who's looking for them. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kim. It was just an awesome conversation and I appreciate your time and we will sign off. Okay, thank you. That's it for this week. To get more information on any of my guests, sponsor an episode or to book me as a speaker for your next event, please visit jugglingwithoutballs.ca. I'm also always on the lookout for interesting guests who juggle it all. So please feel free to send me your suggestions. Please rate, review, and follow at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a wrap. See you next week, jugglers.